Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan, crusted chicken, or garlic, butter, shrimp, scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. Wow. Nice. Yeah. What you're hearing are the sounds of people everywhere putting on Bomba socks, underwear, and T-shirts made from absurdly soft materials that feel like plush clouds. Yeah, that plush. And the best part? For every item you purchase, Bombas donates another to someone facing homelessness. Bombas. Big comfort for everyone. Go to bombas.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. That's bombas.com slash ACAST. Code ACAST. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Welcome to The Other Hand, a podcast brought to you by CJP Economics, a collaboration between Jim Power and Chris Johns, where we discuss the intersection between politics, finance, and economics. Our back catalogue of podcasts can be found at our Substack website, and that Substack site also contains our extensive body of written work. Thanks for listening and reading. If you like our work, please share with your friends and sign up to our newsletter. Welcome to the latest podcast. Uh, I want to start off today with a discussion on what's happening on markets because since the beginning of the year, we've seen quite a bit of volatility and a lot of the major global equity market indices are in negative territory. And indeed, in the last 24 hours, we've seen a lot of volatility. We've seen a lot of weakness in markets generally. Um, We have stock-specific stories like Peloton and Netflix Um, with profit warnings in the United States, which has, along with a lot of other um, specific stock stories, has created a little bit of nervousness. Um, We have oil prices, which Brent crude went over $89 a barrel earlier this week, um, coming back down a little bit again. Uh, We have Bitcoin, our old friend, um, down 8% in the last 24 hours and, you know, continuing to display incredible signs of volatility, which from um, uh, an investor perspective um, is obviously quite dangerous. And I think it it resonates very strongly with a discussion we had a couple of weeks ago about IMF warnings on Bitcoin becoming um, a source of financial instability in equity, in investment markets generally. Um, We have the Russia-Ukraine story continuing to um, escalate with um, Lots of tit-for-tat stuff now going on between Russia and the United States and Biden's couple of interventions over the last few days, um, you know, creating a lot of um, nervousness in markets. So generally, um, we are in a period of, I think, intense uncertainty, intense volatility. Um, I've seen some of the 
um, real equity bears for the last decade starting to reemerge over the last couple of days, suggesting that this is the beginning of the end for equity markets. Uh, so how do you read it? Well, as you say, Jim, there's a, a hell of a lot going on, both at the market level and the individual stock price level. Uh, as we're speaking, before the US market opens, Netflix is down 20%, give or take, pre-market. Peloton, the exercise bike maker, is down about 25%. There's something called a virtual work and life exchange-traded fund issued by BlackRock, the world's largest asset manager. Virtual work and life ETF. Well, an ETF is a basket of stocks. You can get an ETF for anything these days. And um, there's new ones every day. But this ETF was created, I think, last year or the year before to capture the zeitgeist of the time, which is that because of the pandemic, we're all working from home. And therefore, all of the streaming services, all of the exercise companies, the Pelotons of this world, the Netflixes of this world, companies like this were bundled up and, show, and sold as an exchange-traded fund, an ETF. And that, at the last time I looked, was trading close to a record low, down about 40% from its peak. Our old friend Zoom is down, is down about 11% year-to-date. DocuSign, something, a piece of a company that produces uh, software that enables virtual collaboration. Roku, which is a Netflix competitor, they're down about 20% year to date. The phenomena of the pandemic, in terms of markets anyway, was the rise of the retail day trader, um, or, so, or perhaps even longer than day in some cases, but certainly the retail guys, girls, um, and all genders sitting in front of their screens um, and apparently making tons of money. I don't know how people are measuring this, but I've seen measures produced in the last day or two that show that this phenomena has gone into reverse and that retail traders people trying to do it for themselves are now, on average, losing money. Their profitability is now negative. One of the reasons why I think a company like Netflix is not doing well is that it's different to the other stocks in what we call the fangs, Facebook, Amazon, Netflix, um, uh, Google, and the like. And that's Warren Buffett, the world's greatest investor, one of the world's richest men, talks about moat, which essentially is the, the competitive advantage that a, a company has. Once you're, once you're with Apple, in a way, you're stuck with Apple because you, you become so entwined with their infrastructure and the various services that they offer. It's very hard to switch from an Apple-based machine, for example, to a, a Microsoft-based system and vice versa. So they have a competitive advantage. Once you're in, you're in. Netflix, companies like Netflix don't because, as we know, the streaming services, the Disney Pluses of this world... I mentioned Roku. There are lots and lots of streaming services. Indeed, Amazon itself offers one as well. So it just seems to be a recipe for spending money with, for, um, with very uncertain gain. So that, that's, I think, is, I think is one reason why people are having a go at Netflix. Uh, you mentioned Bitcoin. Bitcoin is interesting from a whole host of perspectives. You and I have talked about some of those in recent times, but the one that you raised, I think, is perhaps at the moment uh, the most important because one of the claimed selling features of Bitcoin, and there are many, different people have different views about this, but there are many virtues claimed for Bitcoin. But one of them, perhaps the one, has been its ability to be an inflation hedge, a super version of gold, for, for, for instance. And uh, it's not acting like that, is it, Jim? Uh, Certainly not. Uh, the correlation with tech stocks is very, very high at the moment. Yeah. For example, 
So what it seems to be behaving like at the moment, and this might change, but at the moment, it seems the IMF is right and that Bitcoin has become a proxy for risk appetite or risk sentiment. And that when stocks are selling off, um, that's risk sentiment deteriorating. And so does Bitcoin. So it's not behaving as its proponents suggested that it would. As you said, it's down about 7.8% today. Um, it's at a five-month low, in fact. So that's interesting. Chris, can, uh, can, can I just stop you for a second on the Bitcoin thing? Um, we've discussed it in a couple of recent podcasts, and we've got a very, very strong blowback reaction from um, a few people. And um, we got one email in the last 24 hours um, with a job advertisement for a job here in Ireland um, revolved around blockchain technology and so on. Um, I, I think it's worth clarifying, you know, what we say about Bitcoin primarily is that as an investment, um, we, we struggle to understand how it can have the sort of inherent value that has been given to it at various times over the last couple of years. Um, we have never suggested that blockchain technology is not the way forward. And in fact, you know, blockchain technology is the future. But people seem to confuse our criticism of Bitcoin and, you know, our, our comparisons of Bitcoin, I guess, with tulip mania and other um, instances of euphoria over the centuries uh, with blockchain. I mean, to me, they are totally unrelated. Blockchain technology stand on, stands on its own. Um, it is playing an incredibly important role now in global payments and will play a much more important role into the future of that. I have no doubt whatsoever. So our critics on Bitcoin seem to confuse or are choosing to confuse what we're saying about Bitcoin with our overall attitude towards blockchain. What do you think? Yeah, that, I think there is some confusion about what we're saying. And, I, and in deference to our wonderful listeners, um, that, that must be a failure of communication on our part rather than anything else. Uh, we could go, talk about this uh, for a very long period of time. You could start with what is value, and that would actually take you down a rabbit hole of almost philosophical discussion. And value is in the eye of the beholder. I guess I would summarize that philosophical discussion. We can point to utility as a source of value, utility being the use to which various things are put. And we just go on and on. The classical economists debated value. Mark Carney, um, the recently departed governor of the Bank of England, has written a whole book about values um, in the broadest sense, in which you can actually find a fabulous discussion um, of this ancient and modern debate over what does constitute value. So when we say that we don't understand what the value of Bitcoin is. We're not saying that we don't understand the concept of value and how tricky it is and how ephemeral it can be. Uh, what I think we're saying is that we're not sure that we are convinced of the case that uh, Bitcoin and particularly a lot of the other 6,000 or so uh, coins that are out there um, have value for us. But I think we've also acknowledged that if somebody else thinks it has value, then one aspect of the valuation philosophical debate, if somebody thinks something has value, then it does. It, it's, ju it's just uh, that it, it's a very slippery, slippery concept. And so what we try to do is examine the arguments that people put forward. So when somebody says it has value, yeah, okay, we accept that. Then we say, okay, well, what value does it have for you and why? 
often, as I say, people talk about it being an inflation hedge. And we observe at the moment and recently, it's not behaved like an inflation hedge. So uh, that that's really where we're at with this. And this debate will run and run as, as these things come and go. You mentioned blockchain technology. I'd actually broaden it out and talk about payment technologies generally, because there are many competing ones. There are different versions of blockchain technologies out there, for instance, and different payments firms are competing with each other with different methods to take uh, the way in which we exchange payments um, forward into the the 21st century. And that has all sorts of implications for the banking system. There are a plethora of new companies that are not Bitcoin-type companies, but nevertheless are harnessing a lot of these new technologies sometimes in old-fashioned ways and just um, updating them. Uh, But the simple fact is we're all using cash far, far less than we did. And there's a fascinating article um, in the FT this week about old-fashioned credit cards. You might remember, if ever you've brought one out of your pocket recently, that uh, they come with the numbers and our names heavily embossed. The old swipe machines used to have to take impressions of credit cards. Who the heck does that anymore? And so credit cards need to be, to the, to the extent that they need to exist at all, um, they, they should be flat and not embossed. But the fact is, we don't even use the cards anymore. We just tap with our phones, and, or at least I do. And so that you, I don't go out with my credit cards anymore. I just go out with my phone. God help me if I lost it, of course. Uh, so so th- th- there are many and different aspects to all of this debate, Jim. I think we're on top of it. And I apologize to our listeners if we haven't uh, explained ourselves properly. Um, we're skeptics, but we think skeptical for a reason. And we're always willing to engage in debate. But getting back to that market discussion, that proxy for risk that Bitcoin seems to have be- become and why risk appetite seems to be going down, that's taking all equity markets down, or most of them anyway, as you say, producing all sorts of market effects. Some of the stocks that I've just mentioned, uh, emerging markets have been doing very, very poorly this year. Some companies have been doing reasonably well. And that's a a whole bunch of unloved companies in what we call the value space. Um, Cheap, unloved companies are really having a day in the sun. You mentioned Jeremy Grantham. The bears are emerging from the woods. Um, uh, Jeremy Grantham is one of those bears who has repeated his claim only this week that equity markets are destined for a 50% fall, at least the US is. And he said a year ago, he was kind of sort of convinced that the market was destined for that kind of fall. And now more than ever, he's absolutely convinced that this is the start of the big one and that the bottom will be somewhere near 50% below the peak. So that's a big call. Um, As you know, Jim, we try to avoid forecasting anything, let alone stock markets. But it it is obviously the case that markets are very nervous. The source of that nervousness is the data on inflation. And perhaps I'll hand back to you. I know we've talked about inflation a lot, but I'm afraid we're going to talk about it a lot this year as well. And just run us through some of the recent numbers, particularly from the States. But we've also had Eurozone, Irish and UK inflation numbers recently none of which paint a very pretty picture. Yeah, it's quite extraordinary to see the headline year-on-year numbers. Um, The United Kingdom, 5.4%, Ireland, 5.5%, the Eurozone, 5%, the United States, 7%, Germany, 5.3%. I could go on and on, but 
most countries around the world are currently experiencing the highest level of annual inflation in three or four decades. So it's, it's, it's a pretty phenomenal time. And um, the debate obviously rages on about um, how sustainable this is. Is it transitory? Is inflation going to become embedded in the system? And of course, nobody knows the answer to that. Um, I, I, be, I just want to talk a little bit about what's happening on the Irish side. Um, as I say, the headline rate in December was 5.5%, which is the highest annual rate since April 2001. And within that, there's two things really driving it. One is housing and um, rents up 8.4%, which is phenomenally strong growth coming on top of the sort of rental growth we've seen over the last five or six years. And no related, but not directly related to that in terms of CPI, is we got house price data this week showing um, national average house prices in November up 14%. 15% outside of Dublin, 12.8% in Dublin. So that the house price situation and the housing situation generally um, continues to get out of control um, from, from a government perspective. So that's bad. But looking at the other elements of inflation, um, a lot of it is down to energy costs. You know, petrol up 31.8%, diesel 35.9%, airfares 66.3%. And um, you 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 would you would feel that if oil prices you know eventually level off, and I know Brent crude this week hit new well new recent highs has come back a bit over the last couple of days, uh, but oil prices continue to trade at elevated levels. Um, but if oil prices start to come down during twenty twenty two, you know you would expect the year on year inflation rate to come down quite significantly as well. Uh, that that's one view of the world. And yesterday in Financial Times, our friend Martin Sanbu had an interesting piece in inflation. Um, and he is very, very definitely a dove on the inflation front. You know, he believes in the notion of inflation being transitory. And he believes that many analysts, commentators and indeed markets are misinterpreting and overinterpreting what's happening on the inflation front. Um, and, and he makes um, a, a few I interesting points. One is that um, it is wrong to look at the year-on-year -year growth rates in prices because you, you need to get down on a much more granular level and look at what's happening sort of from month to month. Um, and, and I guess a much more sort of a high-frequency approach to the analysis. Secondly, um, he believes that you know, inflation is already starting to moderate. And, and one of the reasons he believes inflation, goods inflation is the issue rather than service inflation. And he believes that one of the reasons for this is that because of COVID-19, there's been a huge switch in spending power away from services towards goods. And there are supply problems on the good side, which is elevating the inflation rate. And that he expects over the next year or so, that there will be a switch back away from goods back into services again. And then goods price inflation will start to come back down and moderate. And the third piece is that he just doesn't believe there's any evidence at the moment to support, particularly in the United States, the notion of a wage price spiral. OK, um, so he makes a lot of other very cogent arguments there, but he's basically... He remains a dove on the inflation front. He does believe that this is transitory. 
and that we will see inflation returning to the sorts of levels we've lived with in recent years over the coming months. Um, that is one perspective on the world. Um, I could throw out numerous other examples of people who believe the very opposite, that inflation is going to become deeply embedded in the system and that, and that it's going to basically percolate throughout all elements of consumer spending, you know, not just energy related ones. So uh, it's it's a debate that continues. Yeah, I think that Sanbu is beginning to resemble that Japanese soldier 10 years after the war has ended on some remote island in the Pacific, uh, still fighting. And uh, he, he has lost the argument, to be honest. He himself has to admit that inflation has already come in much higher for much longer than he was expecting. I think, though, the points he makes are good ones that, yes, we do need to... I think this point about the month-on-month rather than year-on-year change, it sounds very geeky, but it is very, very important. And it speaks to a bigger problem that we've got in interpreting where various economies are. Back in the 1970s, when you and I were growing up in the economics world, Jim, um, going to school, going to university and all the rest of it, uh, there were lots of books and articles written about stop-go economics because the Keynesian business cycle management thing that governments did back then produced stop-go economies. Uh, Economies were stimulated, that was the go part, then they generated a bit of inflation, then policy was reversed, that was the stop. So it was a staccato-type business cycle, and economists wrote articles, as I say, and did research as to how to move away from stop-go economics, and we had the 80s and the 90s then. Uh, if you think about the last two years, we've had the ultimate stop-go economic policy, much, much bigger than anything that took place back in the 1970s that gave rise to that phrase, because economies were stopped. They were shut down, put on hold. And all of the pandemic relief policies uh, alleviated some of the hardship that flowed from that, but economies were stopped. And then the lever was thrown in the opposite direction, and we were all told to go again admittedly, with a few setbacks along the way. But the ultimate stop-go in terms of the macroeconomy, in terms of the business cycle, means that we're dealing with something right now that has no precedent. And this is nothing like the 1970s because of the scale with which things were stopped and then suddenly restarted. And uh, that has led to us having great difficulties in interpreting where we are at the moment Our models, our theories, and our core beliefs tell us that the past does inform the future. We learn from past business cycles how the future business cycle will go. But because this business cycle that we've had has zero precedent in economic history, we really don't know where we are at the moment, and we really, really don't know where we're going. You know, you might start telling all sorts of economist jokes at this point, saying, well, what's new? This really is different. Um, the extent to which we're operating in the dark. And this speaks to Sandwood's point that we've got to look to the high frequency stuff now rather than the what compared today with what happened a year ago. That's comparing today to ancient history because things are changing so rapidly. So I think that point he makes is a good one. But coming back to his inflation dovishness, the fact that he's still not worried about inflation, it comes down to the biggest call of all that he's making, which is that this won't feed into a wage price spiral. This won't feed into wages. And The truth about that is we just don't know. And he might be right that the the wage effects of all of this will be weak 
he could be wrong and that people like Larry Summers, who's leading the inflation charge on the bullish side, um, the hawkish side, if you like, to change switch metaphors to mixed metaphors, is the one that at the moment feels that um, he's got it right, much more right than Sanbu. So uh, I'd be very worried that two things are going to happen that Sanbu is not expecting, which is that it is going to feed into wages. The other thing that he's expecting is these sectoral effects, this point that you made about goods price inflation, because all of our spending switched from, serve, not all of it, but quite a bit of our spending switched from services to physical goods. That, that, that exaggerated, exacerbated the su supply chain problems that we read so much about. And hey, presto, goods prices go up. He thinks that will just work its way through the system and will come to a natural end. I'm not so sure. What worries me about it is that even if he's right, it could just take an awful lot longer to work its way through the system. Yeah. Chris, bring it back to brass tacks um, in terms of what central banks are going to do to, in reaction to this. You know, it seems pretty clear that the Bank of England and the US Federal Reserve are, are, are going to work aggressively over the next few months to try and get on top of the inflation story. So in other words, they are going to start increasing interest rates um, in a more significant way. Um, the European Central Bank um, is, is now coming under some criticism um, from certain quarters about it's been accused of being behind the curve and that, you know, in, inflation is starting to become embedded in the euro area and that it's high time that the European Central Bank started to react to that through a tightening of monetary policy. Christine Lagarde, the president of the European Central Bank, in the last 24 hours has defended this position and is certainly sticking to the view that has been um, expressed recently very strongly by the Irishman uh, Philip Lane, who was chief economist at, at the European Central Bank, that this is just a transitory COVID-related phenomenon. So Lagarde is sticking to this view, but I, I actually think that um, from a prudential perspective, I think it's now incumbent on the European Central Bank to actually start to tighten monetary policy because um, waiting six or 12 months down the road um, may be too late and it may be too difficult to try and get back on top of it. So uh, just to summarize my view, the US Federal Reserve, the Bank of England certainly are going to move more aggressively in terms of tightening. Um, not so for the moment, but the, for the European Central Bank. But I wouldn't hold my breath on that. I have to say, I think the ECB is highly likely to change over the coming months. What do you think? Well, if they do, I don't think they should. Uh, it, it could well be the case that some small tightening is warranted later on in the year if, if this continues in the way that it, it has done recently. But I think that, first of all, in terms of the actual numbers, the US clearly has the biggest numerical inflation problem. 7%. Nobody has that yet in, on this side of the water. So already it has the biggest problem. And I think that there are uh, a couple of reasons for this. First of all, relative to Europe, I think that the Larry Summers case is well made, which is that the United States, via both Biden's fiscal packages and the Fed's money printing, has overstimulated its economy. Uh, I don't think you can say that about official policy in Europe. There's been policy stimulus but nowhere near on the scale of the United States and therefore hasn't overstimulated, in other words, causing price pressures that the, in the way that the United States has. The second thing is that this 
um, great switch away from services to goods, people getting stuff delivered to their doors rather than consuming services is a US phenomenon. It's not a Europe, it didn't really happen to this anywhere near the same extent in Europe. So th those pressures just aren't there. So I think that Sanbu's case for lower inflation is actually better made for Europe than it is for the United States. So I, I, I think, Jim, there's a bit of daylight between us on this one. But what I would say where I do agree with you is that it, with, if the United States goes in the way that we now think it will, the way markets think it will, there's speculation that come March, not too far away now, that there could be a 50 basis points, half a percentage point rise in US short term interest rates. We haven't seen that for many, many years. And it's widely expected that the UK will have a second rate hike as early as next month. So, yes, with those two central banks tightening, um, it would be unusual, not unprecedented for the European Central Bank, not at some point to follow. Um, monetary policy does have global uh, drivers as well as domestic ones. But, but, but tell me, Chris, um, from a European Central Bank perspective, uh, you know, a, a key role for central bankers is managing expectations and to date, the only thing the European Central Bank has done in terms of managing expectations is sending people like Philip Lane out, you know, to arguing that this is very much a transitory COVID-related inflation spike uh, that will quickly dissipate as 2022 progresses. Um, so that's that has been the strategy in terms of managing expectations. Um, I'm not sure if actually that's enough. Um, we see in financial markets the German 10-year bond, which is called the Bund, um, went into positive territory this week for the first time since 2019. So the markets are clearly starting, and, and I'm not saying the markets are always right, but I guess the markets are never right or wrong. The markets are the markets. They do what they do, but they're certainly moving to reflect at the moment a view that the European Central Bank is a little bit behind the inflation curve at this juncture. Okay, so in terms of managing expectations, what is the next thing the European Central Bank can do? Um, to me, it's to indicate and perhaps deliver eventually a tightening of monetary policy. Well, markets actually agree with Sanbu. If you look at the expectations for inflation built into bond yields in the United States, it's that, yeah, inflation's high at the moment, but over the next five to 10 years, it's going to come back and settle at around the two, two and a half percent level that we kind of sort of think that US central banks should be targeting. And there's no evidence from financial markets that inflation expectations are taking off. You mentioned German bond yields going um, above zero ever so slightly for a brief time this week. Uh, I'm tempted to say, Jim, so what? I mean, so well, Chris, they're up 50 basis points in the last three months. Yeah, so that's a big change. They've gone from being quite negative to zero, but it's still the case that the German and indeed other governments um, in Europe can borrow in real terms at negative rates. So uh, I don't see much evidence there for uh, the market saying that inflation is going to run out of control. If the markets were truly worried about inflation, we would be seeing bond yields uh, in, in, in Germany of 2, 3, 4%. Uh, but we're not. And of course, there may be other reasons why bond yields are suppressed. Financial repression is a, is a favorite term of mine. And we, we have to remember that, uh, that that's always lurking in the background. But on the face of it, Jim, 
I'd say that um, th there aren't any runaway inflation expectations and that the markets are saying actually that they agree more with me than you, to be honest. Yeah, I, I would say watch the relative move rather than the absolute level of bond yields at the moment. OK, so we'll correct, Chris, it's clear that we, 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 neither of us knows the answer here. There's massive uncertainty. Nobody knows the answer. So this is a topic we will keep coming back to. Something I wanted to ask you about, given where you're located, uh, what's happening in the UK? Um, and specifically, you know, I look at the strength of sterling. It's weakened slightly today, but we're still looking at a sterling euro exchange rate of about 83 and a half pence, uh, which is a very, very strong level for sterling. And given all that's happening in the UK at the moment with massive political uncertainty, with massive policy uncertainty, how do you or do you attach significance to the strength of sterling and how do you explain it if you do? I think sterling's been going up for all sorts of reasons, again, some of which we understand, some of which we don't. Uh, it weakened a little bit today on the basis of um, some retail sales numbers in this in the UK that uh, were weak. So uh, um, I think that the story is essentially about interest rates. Sterling has gone up because the Bank of England has been the first one to tighten. We had a small rate rise last month and we're getting another one quite soon. So before anybody else has raised interest rates in the developed world, at least, um, the UK <clears throat> will have gone twice. So I, I think that that's the, the main reason. Um, I, I, I'm not sure that sterling strength is going to persist. I think that the UK has lots of problems, both economic and very obviously political. Um, but I'm not, you know, that's just a feeling I have. I, would, I Like everything else, um, that we we talk about forecasting, I, I would not become an exchange rate forecaster at this at this point in time. But I'd be nervous about uh, sterling's future, given all that's happening both to the UK economy because of Brexit and what is happening to the UK political system because of Mr Johnson. I know you're a huge fan of Boris Knott. Uh, what do you think his chances of survival are at this stage? Uh, they're not zero, but I think they're approaching that sort of level. Um, the issue for me is when he goes rather than if he goes. Uh, that he's, he's been so badly damaged by recent events, which um, are, are very obvious, and we won't go into them now. Uh, it, it's very hard for me to see a way out for him. Uh, we always need to caveat conclusions like that by saying in politics in particular, events can, can certainly change things dramatically. It wasn't that long ago that Johnson and his fans in the media were talking about him being prime minister for longer than Margaret Thatcher and that being a realistic ambition. Now, it looks as if he's not going to serve a full term. So things can change very dramatically um, because of unforeseen developments. If he became a hero for some reason or another, I'm reminded of when Margaret Thatcher was thought likely to lose the next election, but the Falklands War got in the way and boosted her popularity. So things like that, God forbid it should be another war, um, can happen. But on what we know at the moment, because of all of the lies, all of the mendacity, uh, I do think that the replacement of Johnson is being planned and that the only variable, if you like, is when the Tory party will do it. My sense is that he will fight and fight tooth and nail to hang on to 10 Downing Street and that the Tory party will let him 
for a while. And when it suits the grandees, the men in grey suits, as they're often called, he will be replaced. So that may not be until later this year. Uh, we have an important event in the next few days, we think, which is the publication of this famous Sue Gray report, which Johnson is clearly hoping will, if not exonerate him, will not uh, point a smoking gun at him and that he will be able to wriggle out of whatever comes out of that. It will provide some cover, in fact, for his claims that he didn't know uh, it was a party. Um, so I think it's, very, it's febrile. It's, uh, it's day to day. There are new revelations every day and one more revelation could sink him. Uh, but my guess is that he's gone. It's just a matter of when, not if. Yeah, I, I, I kind of detect that there's a slight change in attitude in the UK about his replacement, you know, when he eventually um, bites the dust. And there was a view up to recently that somebody like Liz Truss, who would be probably, you know, on that extreme wing of the Tory party, or at least politics have forced her out there, um, she seems to have gone off the boil a little bit in terms of the successor. And there's now a little bit of chat about perhaps they will do what they did when they made John Major leader. They went for a sort of a unexciting centrist type candidate to try and restore some sense of unity and stability back to the Tory party. Um, who would fit that sort of bill at this juncture? Or do, 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 do you agree or do you think they will go for somebody like Truss again? Because it's clear from uh, some of the comments that are coming out from anti-Boris people within the Tory party at the moment, you know, they're saying that the whole regime is now incredibly authoritarian, that, T or sorry, MPs, I beg your pardon, who are openly critical of Boris are coming under significant intimidation and pressure. Um. So who would sort of fit that centre? Well, the centre has been eviscerated in the parliamentary party, the Conservative Party. Uh, they've all been cl cleaned out, almost. There are one or two left, but not many. Um, the the centrist, reasonable man, uh, reasonable person candidate would be Jeremy Hunt, who uh, ran last time and ended in, up in a runoff with, with Johnson. It's not even clear that he would run this time. Uh, th but there aren't many, many Jeremy Hunts left. I think that one of the reasons why I think they will wait for um, for getting rid of Johnson is that they don't they're not sure about trust as you suggested because trust was a remainer and remember that the the culture war that is Brexit still rages in parts of this country and the Tory party uh, would hate to see anybody gaining power in the way that Theresa May did who was a remain voting conservative but nevertheless became Tory leader and tried to deliver a Brexit and she was gotten rid of mostly because she wasn't delivering the hard Brexit that the nutters always wanted. So they will be very keen to preserve that legacy. They will want to make sure that a true believer rather than a Brexit opportunist uh, gets, gets in. Um, they always knew that Johnson was a true believer and, and he, he did deliver the hardest of hard Brexits. Uh, they think Truss is probably a believer now, but they're not sure because she clearly has changed her mind because she voted Remain and has said an awful lot of Remainy type things before she had her conversion on the road to Damascus. 
so it's not inconceivable that the nutters on the back benches of the Conservative Party might put somebody like Steve Baker up for election just to preserve the legacy of the, the diamond hard Brexit that they have so far managed to achieve. Uh, so I think that's partly that really drives my feeling that they are going to wait because they will want their person to be the next prime minister rather than somebody that they have suspicions of. But there's an awful lot to play for. Okay, Chris, um, I think I will miss Boris more than you will. Um, The final point is just to, I guess, mark the day that at six o'clock this evening, I believe the Taoiseach is going to announce a massive easing of restrictions here, uh, here in Ireland. So some sense of returning to normality at last, at least for the moment, that has to be acknowledged in our COVID corner. Um, It's a positive day and certainly... If you compare today with what was happening this time last year in this country, um, it does feel quite liberating. So bring it on. Listen, thanks a million, Chris. Good to talk to you as always. Talk next week. You have been listening to Chris Johns and Jim Power. On the other hand, we hope you enjoyed it. If you did, please sign up to our Substack account, www cjpeconomics.substack.com You can download our podcasts on Apple, Spotify and other good podcast platforms. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. Hello, Fresh. 